Whoever was the first to say, "'Tis better to give than to receive," obviously never was up for an Oscar. Now they're wonderful. They all have their Oscars. But are they happy? Hello, and welcome back to the Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movies that are the most Oscar knobs and no wins whatsoever. I am your host, Danny Vincent, and tis the season to be purple. I don't have a joke prepared. I'm Sarah. And I am Caleb. Wow, wow, guys. So I'm the only one here who makes our customary jokes to make me look bad that I think it'd be okay to make a joke. I see how this is. This is a very serious movie. I don't know if I want to make a joke. Uh, th- that's my point, though, is that no one cleared with me beforehand that we weren't making jokes, so now I just look like an well, idiot. I didn't make whatever. a joke because it's, it's a serious movie. I just didn't make a joke because I didn't have a joke. Now, for our Christmas episode, we're going to the 58th Academy Awards, and that is the ni- films of 1985. Now, there were two films of 11 nominations. One of them was Out of Africa. It won Best Picture. Best Director for Sidney Pollack, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score for John Barry, Best Sound, Best Art Direction, and Best Cinematography. Then there was another film with 11 nominations that won nothing. Nothing at all. And that film is Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple. Now, Sarah, tell me what The Color Purple was nominated for. Oh, geez. Okay. It was nominated for Best Picture, and I usually do not say who's nominated for Best Picture, but I did this time. Uh, for Steven Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy, Frank Marshall, and Quincy Jones, uh, and it lost to Out of Africa. Spielberg has been nominated 18 more times and has won three, plus the Irvin G. Thalberg Memorial Award. Kennedy has been nominated seven more times and won the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. Marshall has been nominated five more times and won the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. And Jones has been nominated six more times and won, you're not going to believe this, the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award. Uh, Best Actress for Whoopi Goldberg. She lost to Geraldine Page for The Trip to Bountiful. Whoopi Goldberg won Best Supporting Actress for Ghost in 1991. Best Supporting Actress for Margaret Avery. She lost to Angelica Houston for Prissy's Honor. Best Supporting Actress for Oprah Winfrey. Uh, She was also nominated for Producing Selma and has also won the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award. Best Adapted Screenplay for Menno Meyers. Uh, he lost to Kurt Ludicky for Out of Africa. <clears throat> Best Art Direction for J. Michael, yes, J. Michael Riva, Bo Welsh, and Linda DeSena. They lost to Stephen B. Grimes and Josie McGavin for Out of Africa. Uh, Welsh was nominated three more times, and DeSena was nominated four more times. Best Cinematography for Alan Davio. Uh, he lost to David Watkin for Out of Africa. He was nominated four more times. Best costume design for uh, Aggie Guyard Rogers. Uh, she lost to Emmy Wada for Ran. Best makeup for Ken Chase. He lost to Michael Westmore and Zoltan Elek for Mask. This one. Best original score for Chris Boardman, Jorge Calandrelli, Andre Crouch, Jack Hayes, Jerry Hay, Quincy Jones, Randy Kerber, Jeremy Lubuck, Joel Rosenbaum, Kaifas Semenya. Fred Steiner, and Rod Temperton. Uh, and they all lost to John Barry for Out of Africa. Calandrelli was also nominated for Best Song for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Hayes was also nominated for The Unsinkable Molly Brown in 1965. And, 
And Temperton also was nominated for a song this year. <sighs> and finally, best original song for Quincy Jones, Ron Temperton, and Lionel Richie. Uh, and they lost to Lionel Richie for White Nights. Uh, Richie was also nominated for Endless Love in 1982. And of course, he won that year. Okay, so 1985 the Oscars. We're never coming back here, so like I did the stats of the ceremony. Um, does not look like there's much interesting stuff, to be honest. The honorary Oscars went to Paul Newman and two people I don't know, Alex North and Charles Buddy Rogers. Let's see if there's anything interesting here. I don't think there is. Uh, Robin Williams was supposed to host. He did host, but unfortunately they had to hire two other people when they should probably said Robin would do it all. Oh, wow. This is definitely, um, this is, you know, a preview ahead to, like, how Caleb was saying this last week that our Christmas episode usually, like, preview ahead to, like, movies we're about to watch. And now I'm, I see that we're at the point where the Oscars, like, when you go to, like, the info tab, it's just stuff where it's, like, here was how the movies performed at the box office. Here were the reviews of the Oscar telecast, and this are the ratings. And it's, like, none of this stuff is interesting to talk about. The Color Purple, our Christmas movie, because the remake is opening today as this movie comes out, as this episode comes out. There is also a very pivotal scene in the sequence in this movie set at Christmas, but I was unaware of that sequence being set at Christmas until I watched the film. Um, honestly, if I had known about that sequence, I might have looked for a different Christmas movie because I feel weird to celebrate Christmas through that sequence. Um, it's a very sad sequence. Um, but, okay, The Color Purple. What do you guys think? It's a movie. It, it, it was, yes. <laughs> um, I liked it. I thought it was very good. Um, I had some reservations going into it. I still have some reservations coming out of it for a number of reasons. Um, I thought it was very depressing, which I didn't necessarily like. Um, I'm very, I'm not going to see the musical probably in theaters because I don't care that much, but I'm, and I'm, I'm I know we're, we're going to try and avoid talking about the musical if we can to not make it not make it entirely about the musical history could repeat itself you know this that could be the movie that has the most oscar nominations no one's this year i just am i don't know i'm very curious to see how this would translate into a musical because i feel like this was very depressing um okay i you know i'm a bit of a spielberg head um, this was one I hadn't watched, mainly because, you know, by the time I really was, like, diving into this filmography for Fablemans, this podcast had already begun. So, it was like, well, okay, let me rephrase. I had already dug in the Spielberg's, okay, let me restart that. Basically, in, like, I think winter of, West, more West Side Story, 2021, I was part of putting together a list of, like, ranking all the Spielberg movies. And so, I tried to watch all of them, with the exception of ones I knew that were on this Snub Club list. Now, I actually did watch one movie that is eventually a Snub Club movie by accident, but since I knew this was on the Snub Club list, I didn't watch this one. Um, and Because I knew I'd eventually get to it. But yes, I am a big fan of the Berg, um, and I think this film is interesting because it's his first attempt at a, like, a real drama. Um, okay, that sounds bad, because I was, you know, like a non-genre drama, I guess that's more what I mean. Um, I think it succeeds at a lot. I think it's a film full of fantastic performances. I don't think you could single out anyone as a bad performance in this, even though I'm sure I don't know. Knowing knowing our stats, I'm sure I for Caleb or Sarah will have a complaint about one's performance. To be clear, I don't know which performance. I'm just saying that I feel like whenever I say everyone's great in this, you guys usually counter me. That's all. But I don't know. Yeah, it was very depressing, as Sarah said. Uh, I thought there were moments of it where Spielberg's direction probably took it a tad too light for what the subject matter was. 
Um, I also think this is a type of movie where I kept waiting for like a plot to happen, and then I realized, oh wait, this is just like a things happen movie, which is fine. But I think the film isn't connected enough to really fully work in that realm. I still liked it. I still think it's a well-made movie. I think it's a good movie. Uh, I think um, it's a movie that probably I would have to really look at all of its nomination and be like, it deserves all of these. But there's a lot of strong points here where it's like picking a winner is tough for me because I'm honestly debating between two. I, I know what nom I'm adding, but I'm debating between two winners to add. I think that this has undeniable moments of brilliant filmmaking, uh, both directorially um, from the performances. I think the Quincy Jones's score is amazing. Um, I think there is some problems with it uh, that kind of halt it from being fully capturing the emotional resonance it is going for. I think some of those can be chalked up to Spielberg's directing, like Danny was kind of talking about. I think parts of those can be chopped up with things that were removed from the book because I um I watched the movie Monday. I listened to the audiobook Tuesday, and then today I listened to the cast recording of the Broadway show. So I've kind of deep dived into this. And now, I you're def- gonna, now you're going to go to the movie and be like, I know all these songs. Look at you. You're like, where's the sing along version already? Yeah, except when they inevitably cut songs out and then add a song so they can get an Oscar nom. They cut a lot of songs. I noticed yesterday I was looking at Wikipedia. They cut like 15 songs. Is there an added song? There's an, I don't think they, they added a song from like, tryouts of the musical so it wouldn't count we definitely need a we definitely need better original song options this year i don't want three barbie noms well you're not gonna get three barbie mom- noms because it's two is the oh, yeah, they're limited too right yeah, yeah you're right you're right but i don't also don't want um i also don't want mario that'd be scary i think we'll get i don't think we'll get mario i do think we'll get a hunger games one but uh although are the, do those cows original if they're in the book i haven't read the book I don't know. I would think they would just submit the Olivia Rodrigo song anyway. But yeah. So I did the I'm deep dive. I'm taking gold derby odds on the songs. Go on, sorry. I did the deep dive. I think the movie is maybe... And I didn't watch the musical, so I don't know if that's better or worse than the movie, but the book definitely is... Uh, the movie's definitely sanitized from the book. Can I also just say, for the record, and we'll get into it more, I absolutely despise the ending of this film <laughs> in one regard which I'm sure we'll get into interesting what is this movie about um, so <laughs> yeah this movie is about uh, a woman named Seely growing up in the uh, early 1900s in Georgia and uh, very early on she is uh, her father rapes her um, spoiler warning, I'm about, or content warning, I'm about to say a bunch of horrific stuff. So, uh, her father rapes her and gives away her children and then marries her off to a man named Mr. Um, who then abuses her for long stretches of time. Mr. is more interested in her sister, um, who, uh, he, uh, he originally wanted to marry, um, before he married Celie. The sister comes to live with them for a little while. Uh, because she doesn't want to be around their father, and Mister tries to rape her, so she runs away. Um, and Mister basically cuts Celia off from her, which is, uh, I guess, kind of the emotional through line of this. And the it's all about them eventually reconnecting 
uh, in the struggle it takes. But in the meantime, Seeley grows up and she forms uh, various relationships with uh, other women. Uh, there's Sophie who marries uh, Mr. Son Harpo. And Sophie is very much the opposite of Seeley, where Seeley just kind of lets things happen to her. Sophie is a kind of a force of nature uh, who has her own subplot that we'll get into, I'm sure. There is Shug, who is a, uh, a jazz singer who Mr. Uh, loves and has had affairs with, but she won't settle down. Um, and then her and uh, Seeley eventually form a relationship, which um, you get one scene of it being romantic in the movie, but that's the main plot thread in the book. Um, and then you get uh, a few other uh, characters, but it it's about Seeley discovering who she is. And eventually she stands up to Mister. She kind of goes and she forms her own life. She starts finding the letters that her sister has sent to her. Her sister is in Africa with some missionaries. And at the end of the film, they reunite. Sorry, can you repeat one thing for me? Um, what would you say was the bigger focus in the book that's not in the movie as much? I'm sorry. I know you said uh, that. Uh, the romantic relationship between Shug and Seeley. That's what I'm curious if the movie will have more of today. The remake. Sorry, the remake. Um, but I'm also curious I, if the, is the musical based more off the movie or is it based off the book? But I also know we don't want to talk I, too much about the remake because obviously this is a classic film in its own regard too. So I will say, cause I think it's, this is a classic film, but it's a classic book. So it's worth talking about the adaptations just based off of the cast recording. I would say that it's clearly taking some cues from the film, but it is incorporating a lot of threads from the book that the film left out. And I feel like the relationship is definitely one of those. I'm excited to see Tri G P Henson. Yes. So the movie has all these like different like uh, threads and everything. And the thing is, is like, even though it has these threads, it really, to me at points, I think you guys would agree. Um, I would say only when Shook shows up does the film actually feel like it begins to move. Um, I don't know. I'm assuming you guys would agree. I guess it's more like once Shug shows up, it feels like there's a clear, I don't know, person for Celia to get to know. But also, we don't need to skip over the beginning because that's like an hour into the movie, too. So, I would say that Sophie, Sophia showing up is kind of where that hit with me. Um, it's kind of Celia's first major relationship or major adult relationship, but also it's the character who most evidently challenges the way she is living her life. I think Shug also does that, but Sophie's introduced before Shug. I don't know. I thought the whole thing was engaging the whole way through. I thought the first act, kind of like the end of the first act, really set up what the movie was going to be about um, with Celia and Nettie um, being separated and, you know, Nettie swearing that she would see her again. I cried like a baby. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. I felt like it was engaging the whole way through. I felt like it was very vignetted in a way. I mean, you had storylines about Celia, you had Sophia's storylines, you had Chug's storylines, but I felt like, I don't know if this is something that I really necessarily like about the movie, but they were all storylines about these women and their trauma. So I thought that they thematically related. I feel like also clarifying for something where even though I go like, this is when the movie really began to like move like story wise. I just mean 
the film gets away from the vignette style for me for a bit. I actually would agree that I was never really bored watching this movie, if that makes sense. You know, I said, like, I don't think it has, like, a clear plot line, you know, because I think the acting is always engaging. I think the world is always engaging, even if it is sometimes incredibly depressing, you know? So, I think this is a good I do think this is a good movie. It's a good movie. I, I would agree with that. I, Like I said, I, I do think there are parts um, in frequent parts where maybe it doesn't quite live up to the story it's trying to tell. I don't know. Where do y'all want to go with this? I don't know, because the thing to me is like, I only have really strong thoughts on one part of the movie, which is the end. But to me, it's like, don't start at the end, because it's the end of the movie, you know? Um, I think it's interesting to talk about character-wise, so we want to go for like the characters besides Celia, because I feel like Celia is clearly like, I mean, to be clear, Whoopi Goldberg is fantastic in this movie. Uh, I'm not giving her the award. Maybe you guys are. I'm not asking if you are or not. But she does so much with just her eyes and the silence in this film that you can always tell what's going on in Celia's head, even when Celia's quiet. She has to be quiet, you know? But beyond that, I think the obvious way to approach this is to be like, let's just go through the characters, you know? Because like, the movie really does focus on the characters one at a time, right? Only at the yeah. end do they all come together. So, so we got Celia, who's like... You know, I kind of clear. I already said her. Unless you guys want to give more about Celie, um, you got um, Nettie. You got obviously you got Mister, uh, but Mister also is in the whole thing. Um, I'm opening up the cast list. You got Lawrence Fishburne. No, you got Sophia. I guess we can start kind of chronological with Nettie because Nettie is the character who has the most absent in the film because these characters come in and out of the narrative as they relate to Celie's life. But she obviously is chased away in the first act. And then eventually uh, Celie finds the letters that she had been writing that Mr. Hidden from her. Um, but it, you know, even then it is, uh, it is not a direct form of communication. So I guess that would be a logical place to start. Um, what do y'all, what do y'all think of, what do y'all think of Nettie? I was a little bit confused at the beginning because the actress who played Nettie looked so much older than the actress who played young Seeley. I understand the intent now because they just use the same actress throughout the whole movie, which I don't really fully get. Um, but she did not act like a little sister. It is always to weird to me in like a movie, a movie like this where it's like seven years later. Um, She's suddenly a Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, this you know? was like 20 years later. It. <laughs> no, was it? Was it? Yeah. It started in I, like... I did the math when it happened. Didn't it start in like... It started in like 19. 1909 or something. Yeah, but then it kept her for a bit. Then I remember it jumped like seven years. I don't know. I thought it was quicker but than that. But it's the same that. actress. I it was like seven. From like 1917 yeah. to 1935 or whatever. Whatever, I don't, it doesn't matter. I just remember being like, can we just said, I guess, obviously, I don't want to see Whoopi Goldberg as, like, a literal child in this movie. Anyways, my point is, like, Nettie just didn't seem like the younger sister to me, especially when she teaches Celie how to read. It felt very, like, older sister to me. Um, I thought that was a great scene. Love that scene. I love their dynamic. I love the two younger actresses' dynamic. Um, even if one of them was not younger, I just, I thought that their 
there's a lot of relationships in the movie, but I felt like their relationship was the most engaging to me um, and the one that I really wanted to see come to fruition. Yeah, I would say this is me. This is me being negative for a second. I actually thought that scene where they were learning to read was Spielberg, like the most Spielberg scene of the entire movie. And I don't mean that necessarily in a good way. Felt a little too much whimsy to me personally. Other than that, I like most of the stuff nutty. I don't know. Um, to me, it's something where to. I don't know. It sounds bad, but I kind of got the. Fi- I I had no idea about the story, right? I really didn't know what the story was about. But I kind of just got the feeling like, oh, okay, well, they're gonna get separate, and that's gonna be like the prologue of the movie, right? So to me, I was watching this, and I'm like, okay, so when is this gonna happen? You know? Because obviously, at this point, we already know Mister's terrible. Like Mister's pretty clearly terrible from the second he's alone with. Uh, I I mean, even before that, the way they are, he's talking to the father about them. Um, but yeah, you see the full brunt of it, uh, when he, when he takes Celie home. Um, I think, I think Sarah kind of covered everything with, about these characters in the first part. I, I guess where I start to, I guess where I want to pick up is when she goes to Africa and this is all stuff that is told over uh, via her letters. So it's, um, it's more montage stuff. It's a lot of voiceover. Um, but it's certainly, it's interesting because I feel like is the place that you can tell Spielberg is the most, um, underdeveloped in, I think at this point in his career is how he is shooting these segments. Not necessarily even that's bad, just, I don't think that they necessarily have the, um, the clarity of vision that the rest of the movie has. Um, and, but I still think, I think that kind of creates an interesting uh, juxtaposition with the rest of the movie and puts the viewers kind of on their kind of puts them on their toes a little bit because it is so different and I think that's apt because the way Celie would be reading these letters is she's hearing about a completely different world I like the shots of like the cinematography a lot. I do like the editing of it too, even if it is like, you know, it is Spielberg first time really playing around this expressionist area. There's one shot, um, this isn't really about that, but it's like around this time where it's like we cut back and it's like Mr. Waking her up from the letter. She like it's just slapped in the face and it's devastating, you know? Um, but you know, um then it's like um what sorry, um Mr. is like uh Oh, there's a shot of Mister where he's completely in silhouette. Also, that's in the sequence too, where he looks like Indiana Jones to me for a second. It really threw me off. Um, but also, I guess that was my main point. Is like I like the editing of these sequences and how it cuts back and forth to the present day and how much grayer the present day looks, especially in the sequences. I also I like the convention that is in the letters that they cannot talk to each other. Like they can't give their opinion on what's going on to the other person because these letters have just, you know, Celie's reading these letters after they've been sent by years. And so, like, Nettie can't refer to things that are happening to Celie, and Celie isn't writing back about things that happened X amount of years ago to, to Nettie. I think that creates an interesting, it's more of a literary concept that comes from the book. But I think it creates an interesting, um, an interesting contrast in the narrative. 
And especially because Spielberg isn't, I wouldn't say he's a literary filmmaker necessarily. Um, so to see him have to handle this type of material is certainly, uh, it's, it's an interesting experiment. Yeah. And obviously this is like a little bit of his, um, you know, his first experience with super dramatic stuff. It's, you know, I believe his next attempt at something like this. No, no, it's Empire of the Sun. Sorry. Empire of the Sun would be after this and then Schindler's List. So I shouldn't just jump ahead to like Schindler's List, you know, because he still is working out the kinks later. Um, so never mind that point. But there is a there is a long stretch in between Empire of the Sun and Schindler's List where he goes back to blockbusters. Oh sure, I'm just talking about his attempts at drama, you know. Also, I don't think it's too long. Um, I I don't remember exactly when Empire of the Sun is, but I feel like that's he does it always in there too, and always isn't a blockbuster. Always is an attempt at a drama. It just it's kind it's blockbuster ish. It's like it's like drama light. Have you any? Have you seen Always? I have not seen Always. It's been on my list, but it's I feel like it would make me too sad to watch. Oh, yeah. And part of the sun is right after this. You're right. I didn't realize that. And then you get Last Crusade, Always, both coming out in 89. Hook comes out in 91. And then, then the 1993, the year of Spielberg. Yeah. Spielberg's um, finest hour. Unless you're a big fan of Warhorse and Adventures of Tintin. Or actually, you know, so some, people those movies? Love 20, some people will love 2002 Spielberg, because that's um, Catch Me If You Can in Minority Report. Man, so. he really peaked. He, he really peaked for He really peaked with Jurassic Park for me. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> uh, he peaked for me when he remade West Side Story, and he made <laughs> Ready Player One. Um, okay, so that's, that's Nettie. Who's next? Sophia. Sophia? Yeah, Sophia's name. Sophia. Devastating story. Crushing. That said, probably to me the best part of the movie, which isn't really a knock against the movie. It's not a knock at all. It's just the movie is a depressing movie. So maybe like this is the most depressing part means it's the most effective part. Um, Oprah plays Sophia. Uh, and she is a very... I also wait, sorry, just because, you know, we always have Wikipedia open during these episodes. I feel like pointing out that for some reason, a image of the dress she wears is in the Wikipedia article. Not not her wearing the dress. It's just an image of the dress in a museum. Um, is on the Wikipedia page for the color purple. Um, but anyway, Sophia begins the story as a, um, you know, independent woman um, who marries into the family, marries Harpo, which... Kind of kept distracting me initially taking out the movie because I know it's named for production well, company. Harpo is Harpo. Oprah backwards. I know. That's why I was like, I, I was confused. I always thought it was just it was Oprah backwards, and that's why it name was Harpo. Um, but now in this movie, it's like, oh, well, her her star role, she was married to Harpo. Is this, is this the thing? I think it's um, just because her name is backwards. I think that's just what it I is. I know. I know. Uh, that's probably it. Yeah. Um, anyway, so she begins very independent and strong. Harpo is a. One of Nettie's, um, not Nettie's, Celie's sons-in-law gets married. First one they get married, marries, um, Sophia. Um, Sophia, uh, is played by Oprah. Uh, she's very independent. She's very smart. She knows exactly what she wants. And like, she definitely wants to like have everything she wants. Um, and yeah, it's a, uh, unfortunately, uh, Harpo, 
doesn't feel like he gets much respect from her, even though it seems initially they love each other very much. Uh, there's a really great edit in there where she's like, like, I'm going to marry you. If it's the last thing I do or something like that. Or like, I'll never marry you in the cuts to their wedding or something like that. I can't remember the exact thing. It's a nice good looking cut. Celie gives the advice to Harpo that he should just um, beat her. Uh, beat Sophie to make her listen to her. Uh, and then, yeah, um, that happens. They begin um, fighting each other. Sophie hits back, and then eventually they suffer, and they go, huh, wow, what a nice little role for Oprah in this movie. I'm surprised she got Oscar nominated, but uh, very, because I'll be real, though. I'll be real. Uh, Dessert nomination from this sequence, this uh, sequence alone, I feel like. She immediately comes in the movie, completely takes over with her energy, uh, even though I know what Oprah looks like, obviously, I don't see Oprah at all. And obviously, in 1985, no one knows who Oprah is. So it's like, who is this woman who immediately radiates a strong energy on the screen? <laughs> Knowing exactly what she wants. She disappears from the movie for about an hour, I feel like, right? You think, it, I think it's about an hour, right? And then she pops, we get to... Well, when's the juke joint segment? Is that an hour later? The Christmas segment? No, so... No. So she... Harpo owns a juke... Sorry, Caleb, you can go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Harpo owns a juke joint and he has a girlfriend on the side named Squeak. And I think, does Sophia leave him? Or she leaves, she leaves somebody. Sophia yeah, leaves Sophia and takes leaves. the kids with her. Because kind of uniquely, and they don't touch on this as much, um, she, she has a pretty uh, safe family structure. She talks about it when she's talking to Mr. before they're married, she has a supportive family structure in a way that Celie and honestly, Mr. and Harpo don't have, which kind of makes her unique in the story. Mm-hmm. So she's able to leave and go live with her sisters. Um, yeah. Um, which is cool, but also, yeah, the movie doesn't get into it at all. I'm hoping the remake does. Do, do her sisters get a song in the musical? Uh, no, uh, or at least not the cast recording I listened to. Missed opportunity. Um, but anyway, so then we go to, um, we cut to uh, an hour later in the movie, we go back to her, and she's like in this town, Lawrence Fishburne is there. And um, I didn't even know it was I, him until he like, showed up later, because I was like, that guy really looks like Lawrence Fishburne, and then he appeared later, and then I saw Larry Fishburne in the credits. He's in his Larry, he's in his Larry era. <laughs> this one in Apocalypse Now. I'm sure there's another, I think he, I believe he is Lawrence in School Days, though, which is pretty soon after this. Um, but he's, he's in his Larry era still. But again, very small role. No idea what his role is actually intended to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. He just pops up twice. Uh, and I, think I, it's I was just, very confused who he was supposed to be. Just I think it's just person. her. No, I think it's just her um, current boyfriend. Oh. That would make sense. I was like, ah, oh, Lawrence Fishburne, there you are. Anyway, um, Lawrence Fishburne, she, this sequence is devastating. It's a uh, Christmas. And no, it's not Christmas mayors. yet. You're right. I'm sorry. You're right. It's not Christmas yet. It's not Christmas. This is actually, actually, I want to point out, this is why the movie kind of confused me, too, and how it's structured, because we get all of what we're about to say next in, like, one straight shot, right? Um, because so Sophia, someone walks up to a white, the white mayor's wife walks up to her and goes, Hey, you should be my maid. And she goes, hell no, never, never. They're like, excuse me. 
hell no. I, I what do you say? Hell no. And then um, she gets arrested and beat up. And yeah. And then the movie cuts eight years later, which is why I get confused about the movie's timeline a lot because it's like we stay with, oh, we, you know, we immediately get all this is one big chunk, basically. Um, that's not an issue with the movie. I'm just saying at, at a point, this point in time, I got a little confused, you know? Yeah. And she has to, so she's in jail for a little bit of time. And then she spends the rest of her sentence uh, under house arrest working as a maid for the mayor and his wife. And that leads to the Christmas segment that Danny's been trying to set up. I mean, I'll be real, though. Even before the Christmas segment, I just think the idea of punching someone to do, to be forced to work as a maid, especially her, knowing what her personality is, is just like fate worse than death type of thing. Well, Uh, there's a little bit, it's a little bit deeper in the book. I know that much. Ooh, pray tell. Caleb, do you want to? Jump in. Yeah. Um, because I'll just be honest. I don't like this segment of the movie. I think this is the worst part from Spielberg's direction. I think it's voyeuristic. I think is um I think it dehumanizes the character and turns her just into a narrative beat uh in a way that I don't like. Um and so I was that's why I decided to read the book was because I was curious how it was handled there. Um there's a lot more context given to her time in prison. I think the most important part is that. Uh, it reflects her relationship to Celie in the sense that she, when she's in prison, embodies Celie because Celie would be the perfect type of person to survive in prison because she is so docile, um, which is such the opposite thing. They get, but when she gets out, there is a lot more focus given to her agency, given to her thoughts. Um, and she doesn't just completely shut off like she does in the movie. She definitely, this has a negative effect on her, and there's still the issue of she doesn't necessarily have a relationship with her children. But what's interesting is she builds a unique relationship with the daughter of the mayor, and eventually that leads to um, they have, after Sophie's time is up, the daughter of the mayor comes over because she thinks they have a genuine relationship. Sophia kind of just lays out that it's like, no, we don't. And that leads to the mayor's daughter, who's very disenfranchised from her family, eventually going to work for Sophia. And it's, it's a very interesting um, journey that goes on in the background of the novel uh, that I think still hits the, um, the seriousness that the movie is trying to go for but never never gets to that point of dehumanization. Well, yeah, that sounds way better in the book. Although I still like the sequence, even though, sure, I guess it. I guess what you're saying about being voyeuristic is true. I just think Oprah sells it really well, you know? I mean, I think so. it's a good sequence. I do feel like it is sort of, like, to the letter, um, just in terms of, like... It is the one time I feel like there's, like... I feel like this is the one time this entire movie is, like, about white people, you know? Yeah, and I'm not, and I'm not saying it to be like I don't like how they treat the white people in this movie. It's more just like <laughs> I don't know. I just I already feel like the movie is super depressing. I think when you add that element to it, it just feels like it's very on the nose. Like we get it, and I just feel like how the story has been told so far has been a very not personal because it's directed by Steven Spielberg, but like <laughs> it has more of it's the narrative is more about. A certain group of people and i feel like once you add this element to it it feels like very on the nose to me sure 
But then at the end, when she's at the dinner table and she's supportive, we get to see the old Sophia back. And it feels very nice. It's a very. There's a Sophia we like from the first act. It's a famous scene, too, because Oprah uh, improvised that scene. (laughs) I was thinking about the classic copy and paste of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Ginocchia. Cut his hands at the table. I'm gonna be like Oprah. Cut her hands at the table. Maybe she did. We don't know. Uh, well, it's that's more true. than that. So she improvised the scene, and then Whoopi Goldberg said, "You just became an actress." But of course, it was Whoopi Goldberg's first movie. So Oprah said, "This your first movie too." <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the person I would I would have gotten from and built the cafe with is um, Danny Glover. <laughs> you know. Like, but I, I do think it's interesting that I knew I knew about this movie, but nothing really, except it was directed by Steven Spielberg. Quincy Jones did the music, I uh, produced, and that I was very Winfrey, surprised how little I knew about this. <laughs> yeah, Oprah Winfrey and Whoopi Goldberg were in it, so of course I assumed that they were the sisters, um, because I was like, oh, it's a movie about two sisters, and those are the two actors I know who are in it. Um, but no, and and I was I was really taken aback by the type of role Oprah took and the way that she performed it. I have some quibbles with the way that this plays out, and I definitely don't want to make it sound like I don't think another perspective on this on this segment um, is valid because I you know I I think that um, it's something that can play off in a lot of different ways to different people. But anyway, I was very impressed by this performance um and very surprised by it because it was not what i was expecting all right and i think we have one last character to really dive into and that's suge right um yeah does someone else want to take lead on suge because i'll be real of the three women i actually find suge the least interesting um that's just me maybe it's because they cut out a central part of her character. Hey, I liked I liked when she made out with her. Uh, that's that's that. I'll give you that. So I, give me more of that. Sure. Mm, I feel like that. <laughs> I sounded really gross saying that. That scene felt. It was a cute scene, but it felt very cute. Like, <laughs> like she was throwing her a bone. It didn't feel like a romantic moment to me. It just felt like I don't know. I mean, I know they sleep together in the book. Not that not that we needed a sex scene per se, but like. At least something that I seems need, like she's I've in love with I've seen Munich. Her. We don't need to. We don't need to see Steven Spielberg do a sex scene. I've seen Munich. Um, well, also, man, I I'm usually very against bringing up the source material comparison, but this was such a glaring omission. It's something that Spielberg Spielberg has said that he regrets leaving all this out. It's not just that they sleep together. Um, because the movie doesn't focus as, or the book doesn't focus as much on the details about that. It it focuses a lot on um, Celie's sexuality and how that changes and how Shug influences that. Um, because Shug's presence in the movie is that she's referred to a lot as Mister's um, uh, on and off girlfriend, and then eventually, because she's sick, Mister brings her to their house and. Uh, Celie takes care of her and kind of heals her back to health, which is where their relationship begins. They have a full-on relationship in the book, and that's what I think is a shame that they cut out, is that they have like 
it is it is not a marriage, but it is definitely a partnership. And they go on to live together, and they have fights, and it's very well developed. And here, they have a friendship for sure, and it's a good friendship for the context of what the movie is trying to do. Um, but the emotional through line is really cut short if you take out that relationship as something that is more than just friends. I don't want to make my opinion seem like the definitive one. Um, Yeah, I mean, I haven't read the book, but I definitely feel like something was missing. Like I said, it just feels like their dynamic is more like Suge feels sorry for her. Um, It just felt like something was not fully there. I mean, I think it's cute. I think it's sweet. But it just kind of stops there. I also think you don't get an idea of what Celia is giving to Suge. And I mean, a big thread in this movie is about how these women's relationships build each other up. And so this, it, I don't know. I get, I get what Celia is getting from Suge. I don't, I don't see it the opposite way. And I think that kind of builds to the feeling of kind of that Suge's just feeling sorry for her, or it's kind of a, I don't know. It's kind of a patronizing thing, and it can be read that way. I'm not sure that's what the movie is definitely doing, but um, I think that might be part of it too. Uh, I'll be honest. I was more into the stuff where it was like, um, it's kind of scenes we already talked about, but I like the scenes where she finds the letters and she's trying to like find stuff for. Her. I like that Shug brings agency to the film. If you get what I mean. Because um, I really do think that's what I was saying. I think the movie really begins when Shug shows up, even if I don't find her particularly compelling. I appreciate that she brings agency to Celie and to the whole narrative of the film. You know, like she's like, I will leave at some point and I need you to come with me. That's eventually where she ends up. But even before then, it's like, she's like, Celie, you don't know what it's like to be loved. I like that she brings all this from a very clear point of compassion. And I also like that the movie makes it very clear. That for some reason that you can never, I don't think ever really know, and it's fine that you don't know that she does legitimately love Mister, and Mister legitimately loves her. I think that's a very interesting dynamic to it all, too. I think the only genuine connection really between Mister and Celie is that they both love Shook, and you can see that when Shook comes back after she's married, because like all the other characters, she'll leave and then come back. Um, they both are so excited when she shows up and then they see that she's married and they're both so disappointed. And it is the only time that they are on the same page about something. Mm, that's a good point. I didn't thought about that. I think as far as Mr. Goes and how Suge could have feelings for him. Um, I don't think that he's redeemed as a character, but I think you end up sort of sympathizing with him as a character a little bit. Um, We talk a lot about how he had a wife before and he was really changed from that. And then the ending, there's kind of this moment where Suge is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get totally into it, but there's this moment where Suge is like, she understands the situation and his involvement in it. And I think that that's kind of where you see like shades of like, maybe he was different at one point. There's also like an interesting generational cycle because you get to see Mister's father, and of course you get to see Harpo, uh, and has how he relates to Mister. So, and it's Harpo's almost, the there is, things at the end. What? 
day. Harpo feels like he finally fixes things somewhat at the end, you know? Like he gets Kinda, back with Sophia. Yeah. They they both it seems like they become more like an old married couple than an abusive couple. You know? Because yeah. Sophia says she's gonna stick up for herself again. There's I don't know. Yeah, Closest in the someone family- in this movie gets the happy ending. Closest <laughs> Well, I guess Celie gets a happy ending, you know? Yeah, I think I yeah. think all the characters get a happy ending. Yeah, it's true. Um, it's true. But I I think that all the family structures are very interesting. But I think this cycle of abuse and how it does kind of Harpo. I I don't think Harpo is necessarily like a great guy at the end of it. But he definitely has broken certain patterns because of Sophia, um, and to a lesser extent because of Squeak, uh, because Squeak also leaves him. Um, but I think that also leads to not, I, I agree, Sarah, not a redemption, but an understanding of the character. I hate the ending of this film where we get this beautiful reunion between um, the sisters. The camera cuts to Mr. looking over there because he's the one who helps the sister immigrate back. He just gives like a head nod. It's like, there I go. I did it. And I'm like, fuck you, movie. Fuck you. I don't care. Like, don't try to make me be like, just because this guy found something that like one good thing to do in his whole life to this woman, that I still hate this guy, you know? And I understand this is something I assume is in the novel, because I was told it's in the remake, or at least rather it's in the musical. Um, I don't know if maybe the movie changes it. Um, but I was just like, this gets me mad because uh, at least as depicted in the film, this man is very irredeemable to me. The movie simplifies it. Uh, the thing of the book is that um, eventually, uh, eventually he is turned around, um, and he does help. Uh, he does help get the uh, get the missionaries back into the country, but his uh, reconnection with uh, Seely is more based off of they. Well, one, the fact that they're both in the same family. So, like, they run into each other because, like, you know, they want to they wanna see, like, uh, Sophia's kids and stuff. So, they run into each other there. But they are able to use that kind of bond with Celie to come to an understanding. He realizes that with her, uh, it kind of realizes her attraction to women and stuff like that. Um, and she helps him work out some things. And it's much more complicated. I don't want to. I don't want to call it a redemption either, because I think that that oversimplifies it. But the movie, the movie definitely has to kind of iron out a lot of the wrinkles in their relationship there. Um, and I think that that maybe comes to comes to maybe feeling a little too neat and tidy at the end. I feel like the movie very much gives you this um, thing where it's like. I, th- I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but I'll say it again. I think the movie gives you this thing where she's like, I turn my back on you. Maybe I didn't say this before. I don't know. But she goes like, uh, I'm not going to look back. I'm going forward. I'm not going to look back at you. It's like, oh, awesome. Great. I can't wait to say that she comes to their own person. And the next thing the movie does is show you that what are they, I don't want to say her curse work because obviously the movie doesn't like that, but she's like, I curse you to be in squalor. And then like the next movie cuts ahead to him like in a rotting house with like animals running around i'm just like i don't care about him i really don't and like i i totally believe that his life's gonna fall apart about her i don't need to see that i want to see her succeed you know 
Uh, and eventually I do get to, but I'm just, just so surprised the movie's priority is to give us Mr.'s downfall before Seeley's success. I don't even think you need Mr.'s downfall, except for the fact that at the end you need to have him be the one to bring the missionaries over. But I just think the way the film is framed is like, I'm never going to look back at you, and the movie immediately looks back at him. I, mean, I don't like that. I mean, I don't see it as a comeuppance thing. I just see it as, like, it's about relationships with each other and with, you know, amongst these people. And I think, like, you know, it's a nice idea if Celie, like, can find Nettie and, you know, on her own. But I think ultimately, like, she, I mean, he does help her. And I think it's kind of like, throughout the movie, you have these threads of, like, you know, Squeak helps Sophia and, um, you know, Celie helps Shug and, like, all this stuff. And I think that this is just kind of turning hands where Mr. finally contributes in this way. Which one, which character was Squeak, by the way? Because I know she's going to be in um, the two hers playing. She, so which uh, character was Squeak? She was Harpo's second. I mean, they don't get married, but she uh, lives with Harpo after Sophia leaves. Um, and they're the ones who start the juke joint fight. And then she leaves with Shug and um, Celie when they go to Memphis because she's going to become a singer. Um, not a ton to do, honestly, in any of the versions. But um, Well, they got her for this one, so I'm sure she'll, get a, sure she'll get a big song. They got her. She's fun. She was fun in the cast recording. But, uh, okay. I had a couple, th- unless you guys have more you want to talk about the movie, that's some production stuff I wanted to talk about with it. I think I, there might be more to talk about with the movie. There could be. I am curious about a few segments. Um, because the way it's, this is such a sprawling movie that's hard to talk about everything. So, are there any, because I have two, are there any segments that y'all want to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? I'm okay. Sarah? Um, none that I can think of, but I would like to hear yours, Caleb. Um, the first one, it comes kind of later in the film. The, the film adds something, which is my favorite adaptational change. If you're going to cut Shug's relationship with Celie, you have to give her something to do. And what she does here is that she is the daughter of the pastor in the community. And she is constantly trying to uh, reconnect with him. But because of her lifestyle, she doesn't. And it ends in a sequence that I think is Spielbergian to the max, but in a way that works, where she leads everyone from the juke joint. She hears the choir at the church. And so she leads everyone at the juke joint where she's singing, singing the same song that they're singing in the church on this long march into the church. And it turns into this big... At first, you think it's going to be kind of like a confrontation between the choir and like the juke, jo- juke joint band, but then they meld together in this beautiful, um, in this beautiful combination, and that finally is what's able to get her father to see her, and that she has the line "See even sinners have souls." Um, I I really like this segment, and I think that. It is maybe a little out of place narratively, but I think the almost magical surrealism of, or magical realism of the combination of these two areas um, and how they merge together to create this like unique space is such a cool 
individual idea. I also just think that sequence. I don't know. I don't want to be like it's just nice because I feel like that's like kind of like diminishing it. But I also just enjoyed it because it was like it felt nice compared to like a lot of the stuff the movie does. You know. I know it's that's like one of those things where like I hate the word wholesome. You know. Um, you just be like, oh, it's nice, but it's meant to be a compliment, you know. It's not a very nice movie. I mean, it's you know, it's a good movie, but it's not a nice movie. So this sequence, I I enjoy because it feels like it feels like it belongs. It also it's nice in a way that doesn't feel like it's normally in a Spielberg movie. I guess that's more what I mean. It's not like Spielberg's typical like makes you feel good sequence. Am I crazy here? Maybe. I like the scene in a vacuum. Um... To me, I feel like it becomes a little, not that I like that the movie is depressing, but it feels a little bit happy, a little bit too happy. I feel like everybody sort of gets their happy ending in a way that doesn't feel totally realistic to me, uh, which I mean, not to say that this, kinda, you know, she's never going to return the King syndrome. So it's like multiple endings keep happening too. you know, it's very return of the King. In that way. Um, and it's not to say like that she doesn't deserve or that this wouldn't happen or anything like that. I just feel like it starts to be a little bit much. I feel like when a movie is very depressing and then everybody starts to like have this happy ending, it feels a little bit like tacked on to me. I think that's fair. Um, the other segment I was curious about was it's intercutting a scene in Africa where some characters are having uh, their face cut as, in which is like the ritual of the tribe and uh Seely almost slitting Mr's throat. Well, let me tell you, at the beginning of the scene, I was like, dang, Quincy Jones score right now is fire. It is incredible. And then I realized it was diegetic music. So I was like, oh, I wonder, I guess this doesn't count for the original score right now because it's diegetically in the film. Um, that was my first thought when this happened. I don't know. I think it's, well done. I also think first one I think was a little long. Um, I think it would be more effective with a couple less cutbacks. Um, I also personally, I don't know. Um, it's not an issue or anything, but I just didn't really get it, which I know might be like yeah. it's kind of annoying. I know it's an annoying take, especially coming from a white dude about this movie. But that's I why I'm, I'm sorry. That's why I'm bringing <laughs> it up. I think it's well edited and the music's great, but I don't get the like the connection they're drawing yeah i don't really get the africa stuff to be honest especially because like like i know that there's like a sequel book that's about the kids and it's um it's a very mature topic um that was not shown in the movie but that would have been like that would have happened during the scene where they get their faces cut um basically the book, the sequel book is about um, female circumcision and how Tashi, the wife, goes through with this decision as an adult woman. And I just, I don't get that either. I don't really get, like, Alice Walker is very critical, I think, of the practice, but it feels kind of empowering in this movie, I guess. I'm sorry, what's the sequel you're talking about? I'm looking for it. So, man, do we, do we even want to get into what it is in the book? Because it doesn't relate to the movie at all. I just want to know. Hold, on, I want to know what this um, sequel is. I Google, I'm on the Wikipedia page. I don't see the sequel, so that's why I'm just curious of the book. 
So I wonder what the sequel is actually called, just so I can look into it, you know? And if not me, the listeners can too, you know? But I didn't know I don't there was know. a cover too. They cover, they cover that segment in the, in the letters which are in the book. I don't know about what they cover in a sequel, though. I only had time to listen to one. It's called Possessing the Secret of Joy. Also, Alice Walker has a lot of wacky opinions. Yeah, <laughs> she's not a great, great person, but... to be honest. I actually no, had no idea that the... Uh, well, I did see that she... Uh, well, she's part of Boycott that we all are. That's not um, really what it is, though. Uh, it's Yeah, you don't... Know, uh, look, look, look I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't, know what, I don't know what it's about. I'm sorry. I, don't, I should, not, uh, should not say anything, because um, I don't know. Um, but I was going to say, actually, what I was surprised by was seeing that the color purple was so... I assumed it was like an old novel. Um, and it just came out three years prior to the movie. So it was very quickly put into production. I kind of conflate... Um, I kind of conflate Alice Walker with Toni Morrison, I think, because I think their their works are very similar to me. And Toni Morrison is not my favorite. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. I love Toni Morrison. <laughs> books i i I don't i don't don't know anything about her as a person no no just the book i don't know anything about her as a person but i the the how she writes her books are very graphic to me that's fair yeah um i've only read five of her books um but yeah it it definitely is graphic what what reminded me of tony morrison here is that um one of the early uh, criticisms of Toni Morrison was that she didn't have white characters in her books, and so they weren't considered serious. And that's what the the mayor's wife reminded me of when it came to pass in this movie. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, they're trying to make it serious." It does kind of feel like a like like not. I don't know. I don't want to phrase it like this, but it is kind of like a like. Well, the white people won't understand. You know what they're going through unless we add this very clear moment of racism. But I don't know. Again, yeah. I want to defend. I, well, not defend it. I also I, I agree. I like it. Well, I also think just Oprah sells it so well. It's depressing and sad to watch, but I also just like watching Oprah act. Now, would it have been nicer to watch her act in a better written script for her scenes, probably. But I had no problems with it. I know you guys are like, Danny, shut up. We already talked about this. No, you're um, good. No, I mean, I guess my thought is having seen this, having seen Schindler's List, I don't, going into this movie, I didn't think that Steven Spielberg was the person to direct this. Having watched it, I kind of agree, especially having that added context of him directing a movie that is so personal to him. And that movie is outstanding, but I, I never want to watch it again. But like, I would be really interesting know. if you guys ever watch like Empire of the Sun, because that's like also not really about you know that's not a personal story. I think it's a better film. This is personally, mm-hmm. but also just because it's got John Leguizamo. Sorry, not John Leguizamo. I'm sorry, Joey Pants. Those aren't even close to the same actor. I know. I don't <laughs> know why I said that. I was thinking of John Malkovich. I think, and that's what because John Malkovich is in the movie. And I just said, and I'm not, I mean, it's not to uh, say that John Leguizamo instead. It's not to yeah. say that he can't direct a movie like this, but I think nowadays that just wouldn't I happen. I think you can direct a movie like this. I mean, 
I think you could make this. I don't want to say you should make it today, but I think you can make a movie like this today. Um, now that said, today more people would be like, "Why isn't a black director directing?" And people said that in the eighties, um, but now um, there are more directors to point to. Is like, why isn't this person doing this? Why isn't this person doing this? You know, uh, Spielberg um, said that in the eighties. Actually, <laughs> yeah, that, he did. No, I know Quincy Jones. I know, and I. I I think there was, of course, the argument, probably, and I don't have this listed on Wikipedia, but I'm sure the argument was, like, we could get probably an unknown black director to do it, or we could get Steven Spielberg, the biggest director in the world, to do it, you know? That's ultimately, like, what you choose between, right? Yeah, and um, uh, Alice and, Alice Walker uh, was not a fan of it until she saw E.T., and then she was like, okay, which I just yeah, find I think it's really, uh, interesting. I mean, E.T. is an incredible film. Like, oh, yeah, uh, but I, I also, love it, but... <laughs> I did find out too that Steven Spielberg chose to cast Whoopi Goldberg because he saw her comedy routine about stoned ET. <laughs> That's hilarious. I wanted to talk about one last thing behind the scenes before we wrap up, unless you guys have other stuff to talk about, which is Sarah having to give that obnoxiously long best original score list, which I personally find this ridiculous, honestly. Is that because Quincy Jones was a producer in the film, was composing, he delegated many tasks to 11 other musicians and arrangers, which caused a dispute that required everyone to get nominated. Now, I understand why this happened. I understand why this is a thing that would happen, especially in the 80s. But today, when Hans Zimmer always like routinely does this, you know, several other people routinely do this, I get very bothered by this. I feel like smells a little fishy to me, you know? But they're like, well, Quincy Jones, you can't have this nomination. That's just me. I also recognize the 80s scores were different. I don't disagree. I mean, I get what you're saying. But I also feel like Hans Zimmer sucks. So... <laughs> but I'm just using him as an example. Every composer does this. Like, uh, Hans Zimmer very specifically does it a lot. But it's like, all these people do this. Well, I mean, also, sir, I'm saying very much... Like, Hans Zimmer wins an Oscar for Dune. Hans Zimmer did not write all the score for Dune on his own. That's just not what he does. That's not what how Hans Zimmer works. But he's the one who gets the Oscar and the credit. I mean, other people get the credit, but they get the credit, like, additional music by, right. like, at the yeah. scroll. I don't know. I was just saying, I thought that was interesting, because that explains why it has 12 yeah. nominations. When we have, like, production people. design teams, there's, you know, like, there are, you know, visual effects teams... So maybe it does make sense, not necessarily to have twelve people, well, but that's the thing too to me is like it feels particularly like bothersome to me that there's twelve people because like you know they find a way to whittle down visual effects to like four nominees or five nominees. Twelve just feels like it's like we're trying to bother. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading too much. To me, it feels like Quincy Jones didn't do this by himself. He had eleven <laughs> other people. I'm just like, all right, well, whatever. <laughs> like uh, it's I don't know, I'm just bothered weird. by it. It's additionally weird because Quincy Jones is like, he wasn't new. Like, we've talked about movies that were scored by Quincy Jones before. Yeah. Yeah. I will say the score, uh, I don't know if it's because of the Steven Spielberg movie. I don't know. But the score, when it went do, 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 I was like, hmm. Exactly. Maybe John Williams is like John Williams is like I can take the credit for the color. Exactly. Purple. Well, John Williams. I mean, he does that. So <laughs> John Williams is an icon. So he only plagiarizes from himself. In March, I saw him in March. 
If it works once. <laughs> Where he's like, this is this is a song I wrote for a Disney Plus show, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I was just like, play Superman. And he didn't play Superman. I was mad. <laughs> the last thing I'm curious about before we get to our nominations is uh, we wanted to talk about this film in its own right. But the remake is coming out. And it's not even a remake. It's an, it's an adaptation of an adaptation because uh, the musical is its own thing. And I personally, after reading the book, was like, I would be fine if this was one of those projects that's readapted every 20, 25 years. Um, I just think the source material is that strong, and there's various ways that you could interpret it. Um, but I guess I'm just curious, uh, do you guys, guys uh, two-fold, do you guys think that this remake is necessary, and how do you feel about remaking, like going back to... Uh, to kind of these classics um, in general. To speak about Steven Spielberg, I much more approve of remaking The Color Purple as a musical, like re-editing the musical, than say, you know, doing West Side Story again, the exact same way you did last time. Um, But this time with a more, again, a more appropriate cast, but like also like less good dancing. Um, I much more like Read out the color purple, sure. I think to me the big question about the color purple to me more lies as a theater person, where it's like, is it? And the color purple's from two thousand five. The musical's from two thousand five, so it's before this craze. But it's like, do we really need to like make every movie into a musical type of thing? Um, but I also understand the color purple is not exactly that. Um, I think that's more the conversation that could be around the Mean Girls remake. Um, but I don't mind like the color purple being remade as a musical. It's a different angle, you know. I feel like if you were to, re- I feel like if it was just a straight remake, I'd be a little like, all right, you know, I don't think we need this. But as a musical, sure, like let's let's see how they do it. Plenty of great actors we can have tackle it today. I'm excited to see it, you know. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say I'm excited to see it. That sounds like I can't wait to go see it, but I will go see the movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously now it has. There's a black director, um, which I think could you know may or may not affect it um the only thing that i'm kind of a little bit weary about is how many like pop stars like r&b singers are in it um i mean it does have you know who else is in it um it does have like fantasia it has daniel brooks Corey hawkins as harpo you know it those are you know broadway stars but i feel like you know having like hallie bailey having her Having Sierra feels very strange to me. It's definitely a way to pull people in, though. Like, both me and uh, my partner were looking at it and we were like, huh, they're in this? That's definitely interesting. I'm interested in it just because I think the source material is strong enough to sustain many, uh, many adaptations. Um, I don't know. I, I, this kind of trend you're seeing, it, I guess it's not really a trend. It's just, it's, interesting that spielberg just did a big remake and now his of his movies is being remade especially since he is still like directing things i I think it's interesting to draw i i kind of would like i don't know i'm fine with anything getting remade i guess anything i liked the west side story remake i didn't see the original i probably had part of it but like it definitely seems like i mean the the cast being updated like definitely mattered to me it felt more honest and it felt more uh interesting because of that um even with a uh even with spielberg behind the lens um and i don't know i i just 
I'm always curious to see how these play into relationship with each other. At the same time, the remake will be our snub club movie. No, I think it would get like two nominations at most. Oh, I don't. I think it's going to play like gum. I think it's something where all the like the early awards coming out now are international bodies, so they just are racist and they won't care about this movie. You know, I think it's because I mean, obviously, I haven't seen the movie yet. I think it will probably play better than we think it will, because obviously, it will be a sad contender. You know. Yeah, I no clue about the about the rewards actually, but I think I think the movie is going to do very well uh, with audiences, um, or at least it's got pool people. I don't know what their reaction to it will be. Um, I definitely think it is. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna draw people's attention. I think people are already post Oppenheimer for another um, studio blockbuster that like even though Oppenheimer's rated R, like it was like you know like a serious movie. You know that's what I mean. It's like it's a serious movie, and obviously the color purple. Massively different audience than Oppenheimer, but I think it's something where people are getting hungry again for like real movies. And I look at what the options are this Christmas that are like block, like you know, like major studio films. And it's like Aquaman, Wonka, uh, and it's like, all right, well, The Color Purple looks like a real movie, so I'll go see The Color Purple, right? And people love musicals. I know a lot of people who only go to the theater when there's a musical. Well, they haven't marketed it as a musical, which sucks, but granted, people know stuff. So, well, I mean, they haven't marketed it as musicals. West Side Story and Dear Evan Hansen bombed, and In the Heights bombed. So, so Warner Brothers has three movies out for Christmas? Yeah, after not releasing anything all year, they're putting out three movies in a okay. week. Okay. No, you could also go see Ferrari or The Iron Claw. Claw. You want to watch oh, I wanted movie. to see that that rom com. Oh, yeah, yeah, the uh, the Gwen Powell one. Yes. What, what Caleb, did you say? I said I am excited for the Iron Claw, but um, oh, that's a that's yeah. A different we're, we're all excited for the Iron Claw. I know I am. It's got one of my uh, my favorite actors in it. <laughs> maybe uh, the Glenn Powell movie will be our sub club movie. Who knows? American Fiction, never a big one, but who knows when that will go wide? Because it could be. Uh, very, uh, we'll see. Very interested in that, but love my boy Jeff. I've seen it twice. I've seen it twice. You've seen it nuns. Yep. Okay. Okay. Right. And Sir Wiki Brown. All right. Anyway, <laughs> that's the color purple, the original 1985 one. Oh, no, it's not. I was about to wrap up the episode, but I realized we haven't done something yet. Sarah, what was this nominated for? Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, it was nominated for. Feel free not to list everyone. I wasn't uh, going to. Score. Okay, good. <laughs> best picture, best actress for Whoopi Goldberg, best supporting actress for Margaret Avery, best supporting actress for Oprah Winfrey, best adapted screenplay, best art direction, best cinematography, best costume design, best makeup, best original score, and best original song. All right. Um, I'll be real. I do not think I, I was debating between two things. And then when I looked at the Wikipedia page earlier, like right after I watched the movie, looked at the nominations. I do not think Quincy Jones should have to share his Oscar with anyone. So I will not go for that. I will go for Oprah, sporting actress. She's really fantastic in this film. She's magnetic. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg is also very good. I, wanna, I don't want to like diminish Whoopi Goldberg's performance, but it is Oprah's movie whenever Oprah is there. So um, that's my choice. I'm going to give it to Whoopi Goldberg. I, 
I don't know. I I always think I always associate her with like hanging out with the Muppets and stuff. Um, <laughs> but I didn't realize she's that. I, like I've never seen her act. You know what I mean? Like she's always like hosting and stuff. So I thought that this was a good display of her talents. I'm very tempted to give it to Margaret Avery so that all three acting noms get it from us. But um, and I do think I think she was good in the movie. But I. I think the score is amazing in this, um, and I'm not giving out any real awards, so I don't care how many people get it. Uh, so I'll give it best original score. I like the idea that they all get Oscars, though. They're all the small ones that they gave Walt <laughs> the Disney dwarfs. that one year. <laughs> I feel like you have to give Quincy a big one, and then the other ones not like the little ones. Yeah, they get a. It's proportionate to how much work they actually put in. Um, the uh i th- i think there's one glaring omission from these nominations which is kind of weird because there are so many um but i would i would nominate this for best editing hmm michael Kahn. sure does have good editing very flashy editing um sarah what about you i'm going to give it best supporting actress i'm <laughs> Forgive me for Akusoa Busia. Uh, she played Nettie. I thought that her performance at the beginning, her performance at the end was okay, but her performance at the beginning was so good. Just, just so good. I knew mine pretty, um, pretty well. Like when I finished the movie, I was like, okay, I know exactly what I'm giving both of these, right? I was debating between score and um, Oprah for the other one, but in this case, I knew exactly. Um, and it's that as much as I hate the character and think the character is repulsive, I think Danny Glover does an excellent job playing against type in this movie. I think he keeps it very real when it could be very cartoonish. I think Danny Glover definitely deserved an Oscar nom for supporting actor for this film. Uh, it's a, it's a, also it's weird that he didn't cause it's a villain role and the Academy loves villains. So um, but I also understand there was a controversy at the time about how this movie depicted black men, so that might have led into why he got snubbed, too. Um, but I think Danny Glover deserved the nomination for this movie. Despite any issue you might have with the writing, he really showed up and did the work and did really fantastic acting in this film. That's my take. All right. You guys want to know what we're doing in the new year? Sure. Yes. Well, I don't think you actually do want to know. Uh, it's, a, it's not a movie you guys are going to be excited for. So we're going to go back to the 51st Academy Awards, talk about a film with five nominations and no wins. Uh, can I have a drum roll, please? Woody Allen's Interiors. Woody Allen makes his first and thankfully only appearance on the Snub Club for his follow-up to Annie Hall. Like, this was the year after Annie Hall. So, yep, we have a couple canceled directors we'll eventually cover on this show. Woody Allen is definitely the first of them, I would say. Like, the first of the really major ones. Um, we have a Mel, we have a David O. Russell, but Woody Allen will be the first one you really dress. Thankfully, all these canceled directors only pop up once, but yes, we'll be talking about interiors. Aw. Interiors, which stars Geraldine Page and Diane Keaton. Um, Sam Watterson looks like he has a minor role in it. It's a movie about an interior designer. 
knowing Woody Allen, it's probably a dramedy, you know? So, um, oh, it looks like it is a mainly a drama. Um, but we will see what we think of it. Um, and also, of course, have to well, obviously address the, the giant elephant in the room on that episode. But for now, it's Christmas. Let's go see The Color Purple. Um, we are not being being paid by Warner Brothers for this episode, but if they'd like to deposit my Venmo is Daniel-Vincent-19. Uh, feel free to deposit my checks, uh, Warner Brothers, for this free marketing. Uh, anyway, I'm Danny Vincent. You can follow me on Venmo at Daniel-Vincent-19. <laughs> you can also follow me on Letterboxd at Blank Mints for all my takes on the movies. You listen to my other podcast, Looking for the Ocean of Pixar Journey, where we just put out our Christmas special about the Buzz Lightyear Star Command Christmas special. Uh, also, we just put out an episode guest starring Caleb and one of all of his buddies from his other podcast, where we talk about the George Lucas film Strange Magic. Woo! Uh, yeah, check that out. Uh, Warner Brothers, you can reimburse me uh, for my shilling by giving me free tickets to Wonka. Um, get Wonka. I won't actually. Get your Willy I, I have a. I I am ready to quiet up and listen down. Um, you can find me at Kid <laughs> from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. From there, you can find my litany of other podcasts: Hot Trash Unlimited, Star Wars Therapy, and All New Fifty Two, which I do with our editor Joe. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Sorry Merry for Christmas. this episode. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And uh, yeah, go check uh, go check out that episode of Looking for the Ocean. We have a fun time, and the conversation goes to places I didn't expect. Uh, Warner Brothers, maybe I'll see Aquaman, but let Amber Heard on your press tour, you cowards. Um... You find me on Letterboxd. We should rank. I feel like we all wait. Wait. We should rank the uh, rank the WB releases of Christmas. Sorry. Where can we find you, Sarah? On Letterboxd. Just uh, not my name. S G K E S S G E K Y. Instagram S G K twenty nine. Uh, you can find the Snub Club uh, on Facebook. The Snub Club Instagram Snub Club Podcast. Uh, the other one Snub Club Pod. All right, Sarah. F Mary Kill, Wonka Aquaman 2, or, or uh Color Purple remake. I guess I would F Color Purple Mary Aquaman Kill Wonka. I think it's gotta be for me, and I will ask you after I'm this. I think it's um Mary Color Purple Fuck Aquaman. Did you say this exact one kill Wonka? I'm gonna I'm gonna marry Wonka and then I'm gonna of course we'll consummate that marriage and then uh, I think I'll kill him. <laughs> it's fuck Mary Kill, you have to pick the other two. You have to they all have to get something. They're witnesses. All right. Come over here and all make right. me. Alright, alright. Um we will see you in the new year with Woody Allen's interiors ring in twenty twenty four. Right. Or whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.